Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Koop, and thanks for listening to Heroes in Our Midst. Now, around here, we are about the hearts of the people we talk to. Yes, we're super interested in their stories, and they usually include some serious accomplishments, but it's the human behind them that really matters. So usually, it doesn't matter when we hear those stories, but it was important to us that today's episode got to you in a timely fashion. Jamie Menzies was recently named the Manitoba Aboriginal Sports and Recreation Council's Female Coach of the Decade, and we wanted to talk to her as soon as we could. Jamie is fierce about her love for her culture, her heritage, her family, and her sport of volleyball. But it's been a journey to get there in so many ways. That's why I'm so excited that she agreed to chat, to share, to be real, to show her humanness, in which you will hear her strength. So, it was just a couple of weeks ago that I got to congratulate her and ask her what this incredible honor means to her. I guess the word that comes to mind is gobsmacked. I was just like, my jaw dropped and I didn't really know what to do with the information, but um, I'm sure as you can attest to, or anyone else who coaches, like it's, it's kind of strange to be awarded something for an activity you choose to do because you already reap benefits from it. So I already reap so many benefits from coaching. It's so strange to now get accolades like this for it, but because it's from the Manitoba Aboriginal Sport and Rec Council, I feel like the award is a bit more meaningful to me because it is so tightly linked to my identity. And I know that they're considering things beyond just wins or things like that they're really they really looked at things in a bit more holistic way so things that matter to be me more I know they were considering those things so it is it is meaningful to me yeah thanks and now the fact that it's from the Manitoba Aboriginal Sports and Recreation Council obviously that's part of your heritage personally but it didn't mean that you just coached Aboriginal athletes. Good point so the MASRC which is the acronym for Manitoba Aboriginal Sport and Rec they manage Indigenous sport. So they are delivering programming just to Indigenous youth um, and adults. But um, they wanted to recognize people that are Indigenous that just, you know, are delivering their programming left, right, and center anywhere. So yeah, no, I work with youth that are non-Indigenous as well as Indigenous. Yeah. It's all streams and you've had your hand in all of it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's worth mentioning. Uh, Now, this is not your first coaching honor. I know because I emcee uh, a plethora of coaching award <laughs> banquets and brunches. <laughs> Cross paths before, yep. Mm-hmm. I've seen you come on that stage a few times. I mean, and even more so Westgate, you were coaching Westgate and you were the high school girls coach of the year. That's right. Yeah. And that was really early on. I uh, That one probably took me most by surprise just because I felt... <laughs> And maybe you remember this, maybe a lot of other females or, you know, people on the spec- the gender spectrum can identify with this, but being a young female, you often don't feel like you're seen as much in a coaching world, for example. And I sometimes felt like I didn't belong. There's a bit of an imposter syndrome going on just because you're young, you're female, most of the other high level coaches are male. So when I got the award, I just like, it really allowed me to turn a corner and kind of start taking myself seriously, actually, with that very first award. So I really, that one, I really valued a lot. Yeah. I love that you bring that up. I think a lot of us as women, we have this thing that we don't know if we're qualified and I don't know why we do it often to ourselves. Yeah. And it's not that I didn't, wasn't getting the encouragement. You're absolutely right. And a lot of my coach mentors were men and I value them in my life. It's just that I think that there's maybe some kind of societal depth there that women aren't told that they're enough Mm -hmm. often enough. Think. Absolutely. And the history of just not there being enough 
right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You don't have those uh, role models to look up to all the time. So you exactly. question yourself. Yeah. 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 So we're yeah. working on that. We're yeah. working on that. And you're a part of that. And I know uh, Sport Manitoba, you know, honored you as a coach of the year one year. And uh, in 2017, you were also the Aboriginal coach of the year. <laughs> and then in Canada Games, you went ahead and were part of a coaching staff that, you know what, thrilled all of us at the Investors Group Centre as one of the coaches for our Canada Games women's team in 2017. Um, I mean, that's not nearly the main part of our, our story today, but tell me a little bit about the atmosphere there and your role in on that team. Sure. Yeah. Well, you've done your homework. You, you've listed those off really well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Being part of the coaching staff with the Canada Games team. Um, the whole, it was a two-year endeavor, really, um, of summer number one of identifying athletes and training them and then kind of training them throughout the winter. And then the next summer was the games. Um, and then some of those athletes I had even coached through younger age groups. So it was really like a really long process. I got to know these people, um, have relationships with them and train them in a lot of different capacities leading up to the Canada Games. So I cared about them in way more ways than just let's go win a Canada Games gold. So I was so happy to be able to observe them and cheer them on as they you know, achieved their goal. And that we got to do it in front of their families and friends and my family and friends and I, I hate to admit this, but I don't think I've ever played or coached in front of a bigger audience than that. And honestly, I don't think those athletes will ever play or coach in front of a bigger audience than that. It was people, as you, if you recall, it was people wall to wall and ceiling to floor and, you know, standing room only. It was, it was great. What an incredible moment. I mean, I remember before the match, um, I was volunteering at the match. So I was fortunate. I got to sort of walk past the massive lineup all the way around investors group, like throughout the campus of University of Manitoba. And it was for it was for a women's volleyball final. It was really, mm. really exciting. And, you know, it was reminiscent of, you know, when the national team was in Winnipeg, you know, and and we were sort of Manitoba's team. And and yes. this girls team that you were a part of leading really became our team in those games like I thought it was just so special so yeah it was so fun we even had sold out audiences for our round robin play our quarterfinal our semi and we were the underdogs in that particular tournament it, it, you know Manitoba has a great history of volleyball but we weren't expected to win and we upset a team in the semis and we upset the team in the finals so it was just like goosebump inducing I loved it I loved every minute Jamie you have coached now the 19U female North American Indigenous Games provincial team since 2012 if I'm right that in itself is almost the decade that you're being honored for Okay, so number one, what's kept you in it so long? And what do you love about that? Like you, I've had a lot of sport experiences, whether high school or provincial teams or club volleyball or university. I've coached a lot of levels as well. But I can tell you that unequivocally, my favorite sporting event that I've ever been a part of of all time is the North American Indigenous Games. It is, I'm actually getting goosebumps just talking about it. Um, from the moment you arrive, the opening ceremonies, the like relationships that are built there, there's a um, athlete's village that is just, you know, full of culture and celebration and dancing and music and arts and crafts and culture from like coast to coast to coast from different communities. And it's just so exciting to see Indigenous youth embrace their identity in that way in a safe place. I feel like often Indigenous identities are torn down in a lot of ways or um, aren't given space. And at the North American Indigenous Games, everyone is just not only able to be themselves, but 
but encouraged to be their biggest version of themselves. And it's just like, I could gush about this event forever and ever. And then on top of it, we get to play sports. So, I mean, bonus. It's not even about the sports with it, but I just, the moment I had a first practice, the first tryout for the, the Indigenous Games Provincial team, I was hooked. It's wow. it's my high, you know, it's just, I can't, I can't compare it to anything else. I mean, being involved at that level too, I mean, that is a provincial team. I mean, what matters to me is, of course, the identity and the relationships and, and things like that. But we also get to work on technical stuff and tactical mm-hmm. stuff. And we also get to try to win. And that's fun too. Yeah. So it's kind of the combination of, you know, the two reasons I coach. And it's, it's yeah, it's so great. So that's a big part of your coaching life. But uh, you do a lot more than that. You're at CMU now. But on the side, since you know that might not have filled your time enough, um, <laughs> you have a volleyball club that you started. I want you to tell us all about it. I know you're super passionate about it. Uh, when was it born? It's called Agujin Volleyball Club. Tell us about this passion of yours. What's it all about? It was born in 2017 um, while my assistant coach Tristan Drylick and I were at the North American Indigenous Games and we were just sitting back in awe of all the athletes and the teams around us. We were just watching two matches happen and and how great the talent was and we were just thinking, wow, like this is such an untapped uh, if I could call it like an untapped pool of athleticism, you know? And so I was kind of, we took a moment to look around and noticed like, where are the university scouts? Where are the college scouts? Where is the media? Where, like when I go to, let's call it mainstream provincials or nationals or club tournaments, even you can't sift through the coaches or the media, like, you know, the hallways are packed. So we were just kind of, we had a moment where we just thought like, wow, I'm sure that's not intentional, but there's some like systemic gap here. And it could be as simple as just calling up some university coaches and telling them to come. But there needs to be bridges and those gaps need to be filled. And so we just kind of got talking and we were excited in the moment. And we just came up with this idea, like, let's create a program that can help bring young Indigenous athletes through an elite program, hopefully elite program, where they learn, you know, well, a bunch of things, but where they can eventually hopefully access post-secondary education through sport, because that's what I had the benefit of doing, um, but through mainstream um, sport. So we came home and, you know, the next day, didn't even sleep on it. We just kind of got moving on it. So aguchin, the word aguchin is um, an OG Cree word or also a Cree word um, that roughly translates. I mean, we've gotten a number of different translations, but basically like she's high in the sky or she's with the stars or she's up in a tree, just like, you know, this feminine deity type idea. Um, And so we just love that for volleyball and for the like female and two spirit direction we wanted to take. And yeah, our main goal was just to kind of bridge that gap between all the amazing Indigenous athletes we have in the province and them not being able to access post-secondary. And at the time we weren't really sure why that gap existed, but we've learned a lot through building this club where the gaps exist. So now we're a bit more equipped to kind of, you know, uh, develop the program to meet the needs of the youth. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And, and have you had success already? I mean, in, in a few short years, have you had some that have been able to bridge that gap and go beyond? Yeah. We've had three go on to play college granted one was recruited by me. So that's a little bit biased, but yeah. So we've had three go on to play college and then, the other side of it that I'm maybe more excited about that I didn't anticipate 
is how many of our 18 U athletes go on to become coaches now, or they want to coach in the Aguchin club, or they want to shadow coaches, or they want to take the courses. So that was kind of this hidden gem that I hadn't imagined initially that I'm really excited because as you and I just spoke about, you know, you need to have the role models in place for people to follow. And so if we can, if the only thing this club ever does is, you know, create 30 indigenous female coaches in this province, like I am a happy camper. So (laughs) yeah, I feel like there's been a ton of success and even we can make it more basic than that. I mean, we've been able to build relationships with 75 indigenous youth in the province and provide them with relationships in an urban center and slap something on their resume and make them feel like they have some friends outside their their own community so there's been just it's just been positive all around well i love it and i love that the spirit behind it too is to is opportunity and and looking to the future and to create leaders i think in time with now a few going to college yeah i think you're going to get the attention of some university coaches and that and maybe change the culture and just even the expectation that uh, of any culture athletes are worth looking at and worth watching yeah and of course i'm, I'm i acknowledge that not every athlete is meant to be a post-secondary <laughs> athlete but even if the our athletes become just more comfortable in the city and are even willing to just pursue education generally or or just broaden their horizons and try new things that's that's great too so you're head coach of the canadian mennonite university women's team i have to say as a as you know my heritage is mennonite and here we're talking about you and your culture and boy, you've coached at Westgate Mennonite. And (laughs) I know CMU was so excited to get you on there, uh, like officially as part of their, you know, coaching staff. And that was not that long ago. No, it wasn't. Um, And just to rewind, um, if it's for what it's worth, my dad grew up in Morden, Manitoba, (laughs) and that was my second home. So I feel very comfortable (laughs) in Mennonite lands. Uh, um, It feels like a second culture, even though it's not (laughs) by blood. Um, But yeah, I uh, started, I assistant coached at CMU for one semester in 2018, and then kind of just transitioned into the head coach position in 2019. And they had asked me for a couple years, but to be completely transparent, I felt a little bit uncomfortable identifying myself with a Mennonite institution and not because I have anything against the Mennonite culture or spirituality. Um, I just... I'm working very hard to wear my Métis loud and proud, and I was just a little hesitant to now associate with a, a culture that wasn't mine. So it did take some convincing, but let me tell you, it has that institution has been so welcoming and has done their best to make sure that I feel like I can be myself in the in the role. So I'm really enjoying it. I do think there's a lot in language and names, and uh, so I do put thought into that, but. Even, you know, day one, I kind of told the athletic director, like, you need to allow me to, you know, have an Indigenous event or, you know, I want to be able to maybe give money to Indigenous athletes or, you know, I just had some terms and they met all of them. And I was just so impressed. Right on. I want to go back, Jamie. And you know, before all the coaching and so much now is based on your, your Aboriginal roots. As you said, your Métis. I like that. Maybe you could tell me what, what is the right thing. So I'm, I'm 
I'm reading that you win a Manitoba Aboriginal Sports Recreation <laughs> Council's award, and yet you're going to the uh, North American Indigenous Games. I mean, I think now in this day and age of all times, we have been alerted to the fact that we need to say the right things and say them the right way. We don't want to offend. We want to support and learn. So I want, so I want to learn. And for those listening, I'm sure want to learn. What's the difference where does that fit? How does that work? I'm super impressed that you asked that question. And yeah, to anyone listening out there, just ask the questions and because le learning is the best way to bridge different cultures. Okay, so Indigenous tends to be the international um, language. So because North American Indigenous Games includes two countries, it's easiest to use Indigenous because that covers, it's from Indigenous law and Indigenous like legal um, documents. Um, so Indigenous covers the gambit globally. So if you're like reading things about different countries or multiple countries, it'll use Indigenous. Um, and gradually individual countries are also adopting Indigenous just because it's easiest and works across the board. Um, Aboriginal was based in the Canadian Constitution. Um, Aboriginal rights as they are in the Canadian Constitution fall under Aboriginal. But that term is becoming less popular because some people argue who falls under that. And there's a lot of really ugly legal battles that are involved in that. So Aboriginal is a little less popular because people are still picking away at it to determine who gets to be Aboriginal and who doesn't. So okay. um, most organizations are going away from Aboriginal. And in fact, Manitoba Aboriginal Sport and Rec is gonna eventually go away from it as well. As far as kind of the three different, I hate to categorize people, but the three different categories in Canada, we have Inuit, Métis and First Nations. And Inuit, Métis, and First Nations are all Indigenous people and all Aboriginal people. Um, but those are the three kind of categories that we have in, uh, in Canada. So I don't know if that kind of helps. It, it, it totally does, actually. It just clears the picture a little bit. I would recommend if you, if you don't know, say Indigenous, but if you can be as specific as possible, choose that route. If you can say Dakota, if you can say Mi'kmaq, if you can say Métis, choose that route. All right. Well, Jamie, let's get to your story because um, one thing I know about your story is that um, it was a while before you even realized your Métis heritage. So take us back to, I guess, the beginnings, your home and your family and all of that, and how that all came to be for you. So my mother's side of the family is Métis, um, and she was born and raised in Dauphin, Manitoba. It's an area that's somewhat immersed in Indigenous communities. There's a lot of reserves out there, and there's a lot of Indigenous people in Dauphin. So I wouldn't say that we were raised... Um, sheltered from Indigenous culture at all. I've been comfortable around it my whole life, but it wasn't acknowledged out loud that it was ours. Um, my mère, which is my grandmother on the Métis side, she grew up at a time where Indigenous people were not only treated poorly like person-to-person -person racism, but even through government policy and, um, you know, oppressive institutions, they were treated they were oppressed and marginalized. So it was really serious business when my grandma was growing up and her family decided to, so they kind of appear in a way that they could pass as either. So they decided to pretend that they weren't indigenous to protect themselves, to protect their offspring, to protect, protect their friends even, um, and to just make sure that they could just live a somewhat normal, let's call it normal life, i.e. Um, not be targeted by the RCMP, not be taken out of your home as a child and sent to a school that's going to, you know, rob you of your 
your language and things like that. You know, there was, there's a ton of policy I could talk about, but so she was living in what I would call colonization, you know, living it. So my grandmother decided to not raise her kids as Métis and decided to not raise them in the language. Um, And she, you you know, like any good mother or parent, did that for their own good and for their well-being. So the Métis-ness in our family skipped only one generation, my mother's, unfortunately. Um, But by the time my siblings and cousins and I were 18, 19, 20, kind of flexing our adult wings and exploring the world of Manitoba a bit more and moving to the big city and stuff, we were being introduced to more Métis culture and meeting people that were wearing it proudly on their sleeves and started to kind of ask questions and wonder about it. And enough questions and family chats later, we all decided to get our Métis status and we've really done a lot of exploration. And it's it's been really neat watching my cousins and siblings all kind of find, you know, Métis can be one identity, but you can, can exercise that identity in different ways. So some people have kind of gone into the arts, other people have gone into music. Um, You know, I wear it on my sport, you know, in my sport hat and everybody's kind of expressing it in their own way. And it's really nice to see everybody wearing it proudly. And my mamère is 94 years old and she's been able to live to see her grandkids um, express her culture and not be oppressed for it. And it's, um, I never thought I'd hear her admit it, but just in the past couple of years, she's acknowledging that to people out loud and telling us more stories about their history and their culture. Cause all of a sudden she's realizing through our exercising it proudly that it's, it is okay. Mm-hmm. And she can just be herself, you know? So it's been kind of a special full circle that I wish never had to happen, but it's, you know, got a happy ending. So yeah. Okay. What an amazing connection now she can make to you even more. And, you know, some people might think, how could you ever, you know, deny your heritage? And yet I only think what a sacrifice she made. Mm. And it was the one, it was the one she knew. I mean, it was the, the one she knew that, that she could make. And in the life she was living, we can't, we, we can't be there and live when she lived and experience her experiences, but just an incredible, what an incredible person and an incredible example. She is. She's uh, one of my top heroes. That's for sure. For a number of reasons. Yeah, I bet. Okay. So let's talk, let's talk sports a little bit. I mean, we, we aren't just talking to athletes and you are much more than an athlete, of course, as we already can tell, but you have some athletic background. Talk about that in your family a little bit. So I would say the athletic side happens to also be my Métis side. Um, my mom kind of picked up any sport that she, you know, that she tried. Um, her two older brothers were drafted to play for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Wow. Um, yeah, there's kind of, there's been some success there. That said, their family wasn't very wealthy, so um, they couldn't really pursue as much as I've luckily had the opportunity to, but kind of played all sports growing up or anything we could get our hands on. As you might know, when you live in a rural community, mm-hmm. um, you don't have to choose one. You can kind of do it all. Mm-hmm. So that was really fortunate. So my siblings and I, well, you know, my parents had this rule, actually, you might appreciate this. I don't know if you had anything like it with your kids, but my parents had a rule that we always had to be in one sport and one art. So mm-hmm. that was the rule. You have to be in one, at least one of each at all times. So at the time, or there were some times when that was a frustrating rule, but mostly I look back on it and think like, what a great rule. 
So um, I think you would appreciate that because you're also a, the perfect overlap of music and uh, and sport. So basketball was actually my first true love. And I really, you know, I did the club circuit with that and I did the provincial team circuit with that rather than with volleyball. So that was really where I put most of my energy initially. I had a great coach and that was kind of the trajectory that I was taking. Um, but I happened to be the age to play Canada games for volleyball. So I decided to switch to that in grade 12 because I wanted to try out for that team. So that kind of set the path for me to pursue post-secondary volleyball in that sense. So incredible. What I know of sport and my, you know, what I know of the, of the path to volleyball, that's actually more of a feat than people understand. Like you didn't pour yourself into volleyball all these years to make sure you could make a Canada games team. So uh, did you realize that at the time that that was pretty unique? Like you just, Oh, you know, I'm just going to switch my sport, you know, quickly before the game so I could go. That's quite an accomplishment. And, and you did go. I did go. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize it was abnormal at the time. It was only later in my 20s when I started coaching provincial teams and clubs that I realized how abnormal it was. I think I got really fortunate at just the year that it was and the makeup of the team. I just so happened to be that missing piece in a few ways. So I got really fortunate and, you know, I'm so grateful for it because even though that was like, you know, 16 or 17 years ago, it's really shaped the trajectory of my adulthood. So what a fortunate bit of luck <laughs> <laughs> and a bit of uh, giftedness perhaps Just a, mostly good coaches and luck but Jamie along with your sport always came education and you that's a big part of your family and about your story and and I'd love for you to tell us that part because that's very it's an impressive part but it's also I think an important part for well athletes to hear and just people to know that there were many sides of you which I think has affected how effective you are now in what you're what you're trying to educate other people on. And I think your education and your background has gone a long way in that and how you speak of things. So, but, but talk a little bit about your family that way. I mean, wow. Sure. Um, I'm really proud of my family. So I, I don't mm -hmm. mind chatting about it at all. Um, my parents are, I think I'm really lucky. My parents bring, um, are kind of the yin and the yang. Like they both have so many qualities, but they, um, they're different. So my dad has his whole life has been like a lot of discipline and mostly academics or like classical music and that kind of side of things. So that part of him kind of dwells in us as well, my siblings and I. We've always had to pursue kind of music in the more classical way, whereas my mom's family would have been more like, let's drum some spoons on our knees and have a party. Um, so both are great, but it's nice to have the balance of the two. Anyway, my dad's family really post-secondary education was not an option, non-negotiable. And he and his siblings all, you know, went on to do pretty great things with their educations and professions. And I shouldn't say great things as though they're better than others, but they really focused on them and prioritized their professions. And that was their raison d'etre a little bit, their reason of being and, you know, their motivation and stuff. So my dad began as a lawyer and then early in his career was appointed to be a federal court judge. So he is still a, a Queen's bench judge, although is part part time now in his 60s. So that's been a really interesting profession to kind of witness over the course of time and also was really interesting, I think, for my mom, especially, but also us as as kids, because when you're the small ish town, Brandon, small towns 
judges kids and wife there's a certain expectation put on you it's kind of a little bit like the preacher's wife or whatever that old shtick you know there's just there's just always a little bit more of a magnifying glass on you growing up and I think my mom felt that a little bit too but my dad had a great career so I did an undergrad in science and then went on to law school and I really love learning in school. I would go back and do more if I could afford it. But, uh, and my, my sister has just completed a PhD in conservation ecology. Um, and when I say just, I mean a month ago, and I'm super proud of her. It was a really long trudge and she did it. And then my brother has just completed a master's in chemistry. And I can't tell you more than that because it's such a complicated title, but without being too long-winded about it, I guess, we all really value education, not only because we enjoy it, but also it's just opened so many doors for all of us. And I'm, I'm really fortunate that I had parents that supported that and encouraged that. And in a, some days, I would say it was a little heavy on my shoulders and, and my siblings' shoulders to have those heavy expectations. But then again, you know, you're not going to live up to expectations that aren't there. So there's pros and cons to it, but I, I'm, I'm really grateful for their direction. So you balanced both. You balanced your, you know, you're taking university courses and, uh, and you played at the University of Winnipeg. Tell us a little bit about your experience playing university volleyball for uh, the Winnipeg Westman. So I've had this theory for a few years that I actually feel like um, you shouldn't be allowed to play university sport until you're 25 or older. Um, <laughs> I, I did enjoy it. And I think the reason I enjoyed it is because at the end of the day, I knew I was there to get a degree. Mm -hmm. So I was able to have some perspective about it. Um, but I'm not convinced that, well, at least I should speak for myself. At 18, I wasn't really mature enough to handle how difficult it was. Mm -hmm. um, it's, as you know, it's a tolling schedule and it's tolling on your body. It's tolling on your mind. It's tolling on your spirit. And there are certainly pros to it, but I feel like the weight of it I would say more people have difficult experiences than purely positive experiences from what I've heard. College is a different story in Canada, but like university is just such a tolling, tolling schedule and experience, I think. So if sport is your numero uno and it doesn't go exactly how you like, it could be life altering and a little bit identity shattering. I'm just fortunate that school was more more my identity than sport at the time but as you probably know I uh, only played four years when I was an early adult and then I went to school a bunch and then I played my fifth year when I was 28 and when I was 28 it was a fantastic experience I had my identity in place my self-esteem was in check I had perspective about my life I you know, didn't sweat the small stuff. Um, it was just, I was fully equipped to enjoy the experience for what it was. Whereas at 18, I'm not sure I was equipped for it. Yeah. So. What a blessing then to have been able to go back and play that one more year. And, and that's also a bit of a unique experience. I think, I think once people have left, they very seldom do come back. I mean, it has, I mean, there are other people that have done it. Um, but in that, in that bit that you talked about leaving, you know, finishing your degree after four years of university, I mean, you, you went on to law school at the University of Manitoba. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about that experience going to law school? It's not for the lighthearted. I don't think so. Maybe what was your decision to go into law? Why were you motivated to do that? And where, cause you're not a lawyer now. Um, maybe tell us, can you share a bit about that story? I think that's important. I'd really like to actually. Um, so I did a, an undergrad in sciences and I felt that when I was leaving UW with a science degree, I didn't really feel like I knew anything about the world. I could 
do some things with test tubes and labs and I could, you know, calculate some chemical formulas, but um, I could tell you how your nervous system worked, whatever, but, but I didn't really feel like I understood how the world worked or how institutions interacted or how governments work or how things, you know, stay afloat and money works and things like that. Mm-hmm. So truthfully, I um, wanted to get into law school just to kind of learn, have a more macro knowledge rather than this micro knowledge that I had. Um, and so it did achieve that. I did leave law school with a lot of tools. I, I think that law school would benefit anyone. The knowledge is just very valuable and useful. And it helped me read and write better, which sounds so basic, but I, you know, to just understand the importance of language and words and how much meaning and depth they can have and how, how you can use them to your benefit and things. So there were a lot of amazing things that I gained in law school. However, it was very difficult. It was pretty depressing. I I don't think I fell into depression in law school, but just the topics and the things that you're learning about the human condition and the way people can treat each other or the way institutions can treat people. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of heavy stuff every single day. And on top of that, you're held to a very high standard and given more work than you can possibly complete. So it was tough. And you're right. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. I especially found it interesting uh, going at it from an, an Indigenous perspective. I was kind of just still learning my Indigenous identity, but there were a lot of Indigenous students in my class. And I remember thinking how difficult it must be for them to not only just be going through law school, which is hard enough as it is, but also to be kind of learning the ways of the oppressor in a way and having to just sit there and accept it as true and accept it as right. After you get out of law school, you have the tools to question things and advocate for things. But while you're in law school, you're kind of just having to accept things at face value a little bit. And I could see that as being difficult when it's very much a European model that we're learning about the law and and the justice system is very much a colonial model. So there were a lot of things that were troubling, but um, I'm glad I did it. It gave me a lot of tools. Now you decided after being called to the bar and you practiced for a year and all of that, and then you decided to leave it. Now, after all that work, some might, I know a lot of people would just stay in it because I've done all that. It doesn't even, I don't even care if I'm not happy doing this. I am staying. When you made that decision, there must've been so many emotions that went with that. And so many thought processes on both sides of the coin, right? You know, it could feel like a failure to you. It could feel like I have to do this. Um, I'm guessing I'm throwing things out, but uh, Jamie, if you can share with us, what was that like in the moment? And how did you have that moment where you said, nope, I can do this. I'm done. I'm doing something else. I'm walking away. So Michelle, let me just first say that that's such an insightful question that not a lot of people think of asking in that way. It, it, you're right. It was absolutely emotional and difficult. Um, and I don't think a lot of people consider that it might be. So thank you for asking that question. I would say, and this is a naive comment perhaps, and I don't mean to say that my troubles are, are objectively huge cause they're not, but in my life, I would say that was a rock bottom. Um, I had in my year of articling and um, of working um, after law school, which was already difficult, it was just kind of years and years of building towards a lack of balance in my life. Mm -hmm. I was drowning in the work and the work didn't mean anything to me. I was losing touch with my friends and family. I was no longer active, which is a huge part of my life and identity. I was not, you know, that you can kind of be 
it's easier to be good at things when you want to be, or you want to be doing them and you love them. I was, um, I was not performing at the level that I wanted to, even in my like legal job, because I didn't care. So it was just kind of a bit of a rock bottom for me. And I wish I could say I was strong enough to unilaterally decide I need to move on. Let's go seize for, you know, different things. It it took a couple people in my office that I was working um, at, you know, taking me for lunch and saying like, you seem miserable or what are you doing? Or one of my best friends taking me for, you know, coffee and saying, Hey, I haven't seen you for six months. Who are you? And thinking like six months, you know, that I didn't even notice. So it was just a combination of feelings and also other people in my life telling me like I needed to make a change. And so I did, and I didn't have a plan and I didn't have a next step and I didn't have a direction, but I just knew that something had to change. So I was unemployed for a chunk of time. And that was a a tough time because um, having lived a life of goal setting and achieving goals and that's my next step and that's my next goal. And I, everything's always planned and perfectly in place. I was now just kind of floundering looking for a next direction. So in that moment, very difficult and very troubling and kind of my identity was hanging by a thread. But now I can look back at that time as like a fork in the road that was so crucial. And to me actually, you know, living out my capabilities and actually doing things that I enjoy. So it was worth the low and it was worth the self-exploration and the time to take a moment to breathe. So yeah, wow. And I know one of our focuses and we're emphasizing in every in every episode, um, we're emphasizing how important the human is behind any performance and any decision and any success or failure. And to be okay with that. And I think maybe at the moment, how you're saying how hard it was, it maybe you weren't totally okay, but you just knew you had to do it. And you were willing to be human enough to make that choice and and to say, you know what, I'm, I can't do this anymore. And I think a lot of people are so scared to do that because I think that they'll feel like, so I'm not strong enough to do it. But really being who you truly are is now where your strength, I I feel like it's stemming from that because you're going to take us now on the next step of your journey. And you went back to UW at a better time and your next professional step was a huge part of your life and a huge part of who you are. So uh, tell us what happened. I mean, I know you, you talked about your, your fifth year and how great that was. Uh, but now talk about that next step. When I quit and was kind of floundering, as I said, um, things aligned. And again, the university of Winnipeg Westman team was missing a piece and I happened to fit that puzzle piece. (laughs) So (laughs) that worked, um, kind of still feeling a little bit like a failure, but overall it was a blast and it got me back in shape and I could just go to classes because I enjoyed them. And I have to say at this point, it's worth noting how supportive my parents were. Um, I think that that's kind of, you know, they're the underlying heroes through this all that they could have been critical. They could have been unsupportive. They could have been naysayers, but instead they just were constantly supportive in their language and their actions and everything. So that was huge. Um, well, and if you think about that, how academic they were and the, and the focus that you felt as a young child, you think, so you're quitting law after all this study and you're playing a sport. Uh, some parents would be freaking out about why is this wise? What are you doing? That was the greatest shock of them all, I would say, is my dad, you know, his generation or demographic, let's say, it's not a bunch that talks about or acknowledges depression or mental health or things like that very much. And not many people from their generation were kind of 
taking lateral forks in the road. They were on a straight trajectory, right? So that was probably one of my greatest um, concerns when I left the legal field is, oh my gosh, like, what is my dad going to say? And he's going to be so disappointed. I made all of these assumptions and put words in his mouth that just didn't exist. He just loved me. And he kind of told me that he and his dad, so my grandpa, um, although they probably seem like straight shooters, what they care about is that we work very hard at what we do. It doesn't matter what it is that we do, but just work hard at it, you know, do it well. Uh, you know, there was a lot of really important conversations that stemmed from that, that I, and I learned a lot about the people in my life and the people that support me. So that was great. And then from there, um, because I was available, I was able to apply to jobs that I actually care about and actually wanted to do. And my next major employment um, was with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And that was life altering and a huge learning experience for me. And I am so happy that I was able to do it. Well, and as your culture, I'm sure now, I mean, as you were getting older and it's becoming more and more important to you, wow, to pour yourself into this, that must have been, may I say, um, a difficult job. What was your role there? Like, what did you do in, in that profession? Yeah, so I was with the legal team, but my specific role was gathering testimony from people across the country. So when I say people, I mean Indigenous people, sometimes women, um, either survivors of violence or people who have lost family members to violence, sometimes elders that have witnessed things in their communities, sometimes experts that work in institutions. Um, So I was just gathering testimony from people and testimony is just a fancy way of saying listening to their truth and their story and then eventually the like academic side of it came and we kind of created data points with what they were telling us and we wrote a report about it but the significantly important stuff was I got to meet Indigenous people from all of the provinces and territories and communities Inuit First Nations and Métis and sometimes I was the first person they were ever telling about this very traumatic experience or not just an experience but lifetime the work involved a lot of cultural ceremony, which was really special, involved a lot of listening, involved a lot of just sitting in the same space as people as they tried to like build the courage to share what's happened to them or their loved ones. And I can say that I've heard such troubling stories but what was very impressive is that people would walk in there maybe a little bit scared, troubled, traumatized, sad, but Typically, they left kind of with a weight off their shoulders, a new hope, a new strength, like to to have their story out in the atmosphere and out in the ethos and doing something now. It was it was kind of this it was, you know, two years of just traveling to communities and watching people feel empowered and heard. So that was pretty special. Unfortunately, Indigenous people aren't always heard in the way that I think people deserve. So great. There was a lot of other like kind of bureaucratic stuff to the job but that was really the highlight is just meeting people and hearing their stories so that lasted for a couple of years and you were expecting for for part of this job so i mean listen i'm a woman i know how having a baby changes your life uh talk a little bit about that path in your life my goodness where did that fit in okay so i uh 
didn't wear pregnancy well. Like I was physically ill and I just, I would, I, I think in retrospect, I was probably a bit depressed, but it could have been a combination of pregnancy and the work I was doing. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but Kona, my son's name, Kona had such an interesting time in utero because he traveled to all of the provinces and territories in my uterus. Um, and what was so special is I was working with an organization that um, the leaders, the commissioners, and most of the staff and my colleagues were female and indigenous. So it was just this powerful group of matriarchs taking care of me the whole time. I would wake up in the morning and there would be medicine women and elders coming to hold my belly, put medicine on it, say prayers, wrap my belly in in um, cloth. Like I was so taken care of because just the most powerful and resilient matriarchs in the country were my colleagues. It was so mind-blowing. And and I have to say that really shifted my perspective because I've never identified really as a mother. That wasn't part of my initial plan necessarily. And these women were celebrating it on a spiritual, cultural, physical, mental, emotional level that I hadn't even considered. And they just raised me up. And I guess in Indigenous culture, the like life-giving force of a female is the central purpose of life um and so it it kind of allowed me to embrace the state of my being more than I would have otherwise so I was pretty lucky in that sense and then I had a kid a little less romantic (laughs) (laughs) and Kona translates as snow or winter in um, Cree and uh, he is the sweetest little kid but you know I've been I went on maternity leave for a year and a half and then corona landed so I've actually kind of been on this two and a half year maternity leave because I opted not to send him back to send him to daycare when Corona started. So um, not as planned, but as I've learned in the past, sometimes the strange forks in the road happen for a reason. So I'm really, really trying hard to embrace my partial stay at home momness. <laughs> Are you more inspired than ever to celebrate your heritage and your culture now that you have a child and you want to pass that on to him? That's so insightful. Absolutely. Um, it, having a kid, I mean, changes your perspective in every way it can, but certainly all the little things that make me me, I want to make sure that I, I'm showing him those in the best light. So it really makes you take a, a microscope to yourself and pick out the bad stuff and try to amplify the good stuff. So it's, it is really a gift. So now we, we're sort of back to present day and, and this incredible award, this decade of, of coaching, this, this award of, uh, you know, being named coach of a decade. Obviously, it means you've poured a ton of stuff into exactly what you've been doing. And, you know, when I, when I hear your story and, and do you feel, I mean, you must feel that this incredible gift of your heritage and, and learning more about it and, you know, being human enough to pick your path and to be where you're passionate. And I loved how you said that. I had time to actually do something I wanted to do. And um, I think that's so important in our lives. Um, you must feel that that just permeates your coaching and your relationships with the, with the athletes that you work with. So that's actually uh, another thing that coaching in the Indigenous um, communities has done for me. And I, I shouldn't say that it doesn't exist in non-Indigenous communities, but it was amplified for me in Indigenous communities that um, bringing your whole self to the to the table all, at all times. So sometimes I feel like mainstream sport can focus on the small piece of the pie that's winning a little too much. 
And the, my experience in Indigenous sport and coaching has been about the whole pie, you know, the, all the elements of the human and winning is still a piece of the pie, but isn't the most important one. So um, that initially was just kind of an academic idea to me, but over the course of the past 15 years or so, I've worked really hard to actually make that idea a practice and to bring it to my coaching every day. And not only to bring my whole self, but to allow space for my athletes whole selves. And obviously I'm not perfect at it, but it it's a concerted effort. And I try every day that I show up to consider the needs of the, the spectrum of their needs and um, the spectrum of who they are and not to expect a team to be an army of identical soldiers, but you know, this person needs this, that this person needs that, and that's fine and it's okay. You don't have to leave your emotions at the door. You don't have to, you know, leave your life at the door. You just be yourself. And and I've found, and this is probably kind of naive because I'm only 35, but I've found that that gets the most success out of my athletes anyway. So it's kind of a benefit and creates wins anyway. So in a, in a roundabout way, we're all just trying to win still, but, but really uh, I do hope that the holistic model comes through in my coaching. And I think that my athletes appreciate that and see it too. Most certainly a whole community of people appreciates what you've brought to the world of coaching. And, and I think, and, and even in this podcast project of ours, what I've been hearing in the heroes we've been talking to and the people in that, what used to be perceived as weakness, being human and allowing people to see who you really are, and what you really need. And yet, if we embrace the diversity, especially in a team sport, the incredible strength from that. And if you are allowed, and I loved how you said that, everyone is allowed to bring their whole person to the table. Um, that reminds me of one other thing about working for the National Inquiry. So the head commissioner of the inquiry was an Indigenous female, and most of my colleagues were female as well. And something that was so special about working for that organization was that tears, crying, hugging, um, talking about your feelings, was seen as a strength and was almost encouraged. And I was told as an employee that if I'm having a bad day, you don't have to work if it's too much, if it's more than you can handle. If you need to cry, go cry. If you need to talk to someone about your mental health, go do it. And all the other jobs that I'd have had until that point, tears were a weakness. Um, showing motion was a weakness. All of these traits that we learn to be not only feminine, but also weak were now celebrated and were seen as strengths. And it was just such a special workplace because you could bring your whole person to the table. <laughs> the only way to be completely mm -hmm. whole. I love that. Uh, so Jamie, as we've done through uh, this whole season, we have a, a list of the same questions we're asking each of our guests. And I, I think this has been such a neat practice for me because I get to ask the questions and get to hear the diversity that comes from the answers that are given. So we're going to run through these and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Jamie, what is your favorite sound? Mm -hmm. That's a cool one. So I I couldn't choose between two in my head. One being skates on ice and another being spoons, musical spoons. Both just have really positive memories for me. So what is something that you've struggled with that continues to affect you now that no one would know looking at you? This might seem minor, but I'm not a morning person. And I wish to heck that I were a morning person. And I think people would, that know me would guess that I'm a morning person because I get a lot done during the day, but I, if I could sleep till noon every day, I would do it. Describe an ordinary moment. 
Mm -hmm. Well, I have a ton of plants and I water plants about once a week. And that's kind of a bit of meditation for me. And then I don't have a dishwasher. So I do dishes every single day and I love and hate it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's ordinary. (laughs) It's so ordinary. (laughs) Love it. What is one piece of advice you want to pass along to others? It's a great question. And I don't want to come off as condescending, but um, one thing that I think a theme that's come out and what we've talked about even is that not to expect the linear. So whether it's, you know, this step must lead to that step, must lead to that step, must lead to that step in your life, or even a hierarchy of who's in charge to who's not in charge. I just feel like thinking of things in a more circular way is healthier. Like this person may be in charge in a way, but you have a lot to bring to the table, even if you're underneath them in the hierarchy. And, you know, it's better if we think of people kind of in that circle where everyone's equal or choices in a circle where everything's equal and not, not linear. Cool. What is a quote you love? So I keep a word document of quotes on my computer and it's about 20 pages long. So this is a tough one for me, but um, a recent one that came out that I thought was kind of relevant to what we're talking about as well. Murray Sinclair is an Ojibwe man from Manitoba. He was a judge in the province and then he was um, a senator for Canada. And now he's just recently retired. So he's mentoring young lawyers. But anyway, um, he has many, many fabulous quotes. And one that came out this past week, he said, we are all part of ongoing colonialism and we either benefit from it or are victimized by it. And so I just really like that because I feel like people can hear colonialism and think it's far in the past and think it's over or think that it doesn't affect them or they're not a part of it. But really, if if you're not a victim of it, you're probably benefiting from it. So there's some self-reflection there to do. What is your favorite failure? So I guess we kind of went there, like my year of practicing at a big money-making firm in the, you know, Portage and Maine kind of area. Like, I don't even know why I thought for a second that was my vibe, but I tried it because it's kind of the much sought after job mm-hmm. and uh, I failed at it, but thank goodness. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, do you have a book you would recommend to other people and why? Oh, I didn't realize the question was recommend. So I don't know that I'd recommend it, but my favorite books of all time are the J.R.R. Tolkien books about Middle Earths, whether it's Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or The Silmarillion or his other anthologies. I am in love with the Middle Earth world and anything Tolkien. Neat. Uh, What are a few songs you love? Um, I love Christmas carols. Mm -hmm. I could listen to them all year round. I've just had, I had a really great childhood as it pertains to Christmas. And so any Christmas carols I love. Um, And my grandpa used to sing in his church choir so I can hear his voice booming with joyful, joyful and all those great things. So I would say Christmas carols. Awesome. We've heard about some amazing people in your life along the way and along in your story. Uh, But who are two or three people you would say who influenced you and how did they impact your life? Mm -hmm. That's tough to shorten that list. But (laughs) I had mentioned my mamère. Um, she's definitely a hero for a lot of reasons, but pretty much any time, um, something kind of difficult happens in my life or I'm having a bad day or I'm feeling low. Um, I know that my grandmother has lived through tougher and, and, and she, like, she has just seen some things and is 94 now and still so optimistic and loving and positive and is just so resilient that I just know, like, you know what? she could do it. So can I. And so she's just gotten me through some really tough times, just knowing that 
she could do it. And um, my cousin, Megan, she, she and I have known each other since the day we were born. So we've been different kinds of friends through different phases of life. But I would say the most important phase of my life where we were very close was when I was playing the first four years of volleyball at the University of Winnipeg. I feel like I was very lucky I lived with her. So I could go, I would go to school and you would kind of drown in the scholastics and drown in the volleyball and kind of get lost in that. But I could come home and she didn't give a rat's butt about sports. So if I told her like, oh, it's not fair. I didn't start this game or, oh, it's not fair. I didn't get in those two minutes of the drill. She'd be like, what does that even mean? You know, and she just, she would just provide such perspective to the things that I thought mattered that actually didn't. And she just kept me so grounded through that whole period because her perspective was on global issues or politics or like poverty or things like that. And she was introducing me to real problems when I thought I had my own. So that was really valuable and made me turn a corner with my perspective on things. Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. Well, let me also return the thank you in a meaningful way. I mean, you are both community leaders, also female leaders, also leaders in sport. And so for you to create this platform for me and others to be able to kind of share what we've learned, that's an honor for me to chat with you, but also, yeah, just thank you for creating this space. A space that's just been filled by Jamie Menzies. Manitoba Aboriginal Sports and Recreation Council's Female Coach of the Decade. Jamie, thanks again, not only for what you have already given, but for what you aspire to continue to give to the next generation of athletes that are in your care. You have inspired us to pay attention to people of all cultures and backgrounds. You have shown us that differences have been made in the past, and we need to continue to work to erase them. And that opportunity should belong to us all. If you have been inspired today, tell your friends. And if you'd like to be inspired again, subscribe to Heroes in Our Midst. We have a ton of stories yet to tell and heroes yet to uncover. Thanks for listening.